Hi, everybody. Last week, we talked about part one of catastrophic sedimentation. So we talked about catastrophism and uniformitarianism and what they were. Then we went on to talk about turbidites and some really cool lab experiments and a little bit about landslides. So this week, we're just going to jump right back in where we left off and start out with talking about weather-induced catastrophic sedimentation events. Enjoy. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Yeah, well, and you know, we can kind of go on to the next very related thing, uh, which you could say, okay, well, maybe we'll go to pyroclastic flows and then on to landslides, right? Because they're both density flows. Exactly. So the exact same sedimentary processes, but now we are in the atmosphere instead of in the ocean. But as we paid $50,000 to learn in meteorology school, air acts as a fluid. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) So it's the same physics that uh, govern these density flows like Lahars. And I mean, anyone that lives near Cascadia has probably heard about these Lahars and you've seen these Lahars in Mexico that just, it's a volcanic slurry essentially that rumbles down the mountain and wipes out everything in its path. And when you have sediments and you liquefy them essentially, these sediments become detached from another. So they're not touching each other anymore. There's no frictional anything involved. And this big matrix-supported flow can, it can do just that. It can support a lot of huge, heavy things. Not just boulders, but like cars and houses. Yeah, these are the scouring pads of geology. They leave (laughs) nothing behind. Exactly. This big, you see these big walls of dirty-looking water, but... It's actually sediment, and that matrix just picks up everything and sort of floats it along. Um, There's a YouTube video in here, and it's from uh, Oregon, I think, where (laughs) these guys video this mudslide. It's just a landslide coming down, and this landslide picks up, like, three cars and a tree, and the tree has not fallen down. It's essentially just picked it up, and it's standing upright, blowing down (laughs) this hill at them. So... Landslides, just like turbidites, are these really strong forces that are super devastating to people and our society, really. Well, yeah, and a good way to get a lot of things loosened up and ready to go is by dumping massive amounts of water, which is something Oklahoma knows a little bit about. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to imagine that a month ago we had this problem since it's been 100 for the past week. But um, on Interstate 35, so big north-south thoroughfare through the middle of the country, back in June, we had enough rain that we caused a huge, well, we didn't, um, that we had a huge landslide. Um, These are through our Arbuckle Mountains, so it's a place every undergrad geologist at OU and OSU hates because they get drug out there constantly. (laughs) (laughs) But now one of those outcrops fell down onto the road. Because I think there was 10 plus inches of rain overnight, and it just collapsed the entire side, and it flowed across both lanes of traffic, and there are huge rocks there, and it's caused a lot of problems, because it was over two months ago, but we've still been having to clean it up, and it's destabilized the whole slope now. 
Yeah, I know they were doing some uh, blasting, I believe, weren't they, earlier to try to get the big hunks broken up to get them off the <laughs> off the road. Yes, exactly. So a couple of weeks ago, um, they blasted the rest of the hillside. And what I heard is they had some trouble. I haven't been able to follow up on this. It's just hearsay. And the blasting actually caused more destabilization. <laughs> so Ooh. you can see how this, like, one night of torrential floods, we had a very wet spring and summer anyway, um, caused some problems. They've had the same thing in Nepal um, over the last week. They've had monsoon-related landslides that have killed a bunch of people, too. So we can talk about weather-related sedimentation a lot, but these are sort of related to floods as well. Yeah. Well, and to give you an idea of how much power, you know, we always talk about it doesn't take very much uh, flowing water to move a car. So don't drive right. into any, any depth of flowing water. But if it just takes a few inches to move a car, it doesn't take a lot to move boulders the size of cars. <laughs> and we have a really amazing video that you found. Exactly. It's a video that I showed in my class, and it's a video that's in a wadi, so one of these dry riverbeds in uh, Afghanistan. And this wadi, I mean, it's not raining where this mudslide or this rock flow is taking place. So that's another reason to be careful when you're outdoors. It doesn't have to be raining where you are to be affected by these sediment deposits that are real geologic hazards. Um, this video is unbelievable. There are boulders, just like you said earlier, John, we were talking about it, boulders the size of Volkswagens that are being carried along in this thing that's like a foot deep, maybe, of water. Yeah, it's not much. Yeah, and it, it literally looks like a river of rock just flowing down this it's amazing yeah it's pretty hard to see the water you just see giant boulders a waterfall of boulders and it lasts and a long say, time yeah oh and you say oh that's that's what they were saying in intro to geology when they're talking about <laughs> mass wasting <laughs> yes exactly you move a lot of mass with just a little bit of water because all you need to do is overcome that frictional uh, you know, rubbing between class. And once you do that, the whole thing acts as one big fluid wreaking utter devastation in its path. Um, there are a lot of maps of these lahars up in the Pacific Northwest that say, you know, if we had another earthquake, this lahar is going to affect this area. And there's a surprising lot of civilization in these areas, which is scary. Oh, yeah. Well, and even today, I'll uh, link this in the show notes on the day that we're recording, there was some flooding going on in Colorado, and the mayor of one of the small towns had a video of one of their drainage ditches, a, a very deep one, luckily, that went through town. It was not raining there at all, but exactly like in this video, they had just this wall of water and debris come down the drainage ditch seemingly out of nowhere. So flash flooding was really a hazard for them. And I'm sure that it's going to leave all kinds of trash and rocks in their ditch and clog up the works. Yeah, floods have been a big problem in Colorado. I know this this year we had a lot of rain out there and a couple of field areas, not for us luckily, but for schools that had field, um, field camps in our area, a couple of their mapping locations were inaccessible due to roadways being washed out from rock slides and debris wow. coming down yeah coming down the drainages and while we didn't get that much rain you know it's rain from the nearby areas so you have to be really weather aware uh, yeah so the next category is one that i like and i know you do too 
which is bolide deposits. Right. Um. And this means big rocks from space. Right. So the term bolide is fun to use instead of meteorite because bolide implies anything that could hit you and make a big hole. So it could be a comet. It could be a meteorite. It could be space debris. <laughs> so we lump it all under this thing called bolide. Um, and I did my master's on this, on some bolide deposits in uh, Missouri, but I know that you like them too, John, so I'll let you talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. And if anybody is reading or has read the book Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, uh, where the earth is pelted with what was the moon. Uh, it's This will be an interesting topic for you as well. Yeah. So bolide deposits are the definition of catastrophic because they occur in seconds, or at least the impact does. And the classic one that you always think of is Meteor Crater, which is a lot of fun to go visit, though it is completely commercial now and privately owned. Oh, right. It is, but the family is committed to sort of keeping the science of it alive for everyone so it's totally worth the money to go in there are some really good guides there and this is a fairly young 50,000 years old uh, impact crater in northern Arizona and it's fairly small kilometer or so across I think yeah so you're looking at three quarters of a mile for those of us that think in U.S. <laughs> length units still and <laughs> that would be you know the rock that made this they think was only about 160 feet or 50 meters in diameter. And it's a really deep hole. <laughs> it is a very deep hole. And they've even <laughs> drilled wells in the bottom to try to uh, look at some of the stratigraphy down below. I don't know how deep those have got, though. It hasn't been done in years. Uh, yeah, it was ages ago that they did this. They did a lot of... Um NASA did a lot of testing out there, and so they sort of used it as an analog for the moon because it was this big crater. Um, but there's a lot of cool deposits that come from this that might be catastrophic sedimentation. But there's also a lot of cool other rocks that have to do with bolide deposits, like there's always a bunch of brescia because you're going to, you know, pulverize a whole bunch of rock. But there's also cool stuff called swayvites. Yeah, so <laughs> swayvites are not pseudotaculite. <laughs> I, I put that in there just for you because I know you love pseudotaculites. <laughs> um, but you're right. So swayvites are impact-related rocks, and it's basically glass and centerized rocks that melt around chunks of country rock. Um, these only happen... In the big impacts. So I don't know if there are any swayvites at Meteor Crater, but. I haven't heard of any. No, I don't and think I, so. I would be surprised. Right, yeah. So these are usually like the really big ones, the impacts that are gonna melt um, a lot of the bedrock when they hit because they're so hot. So obviously, Chicxulub has a ton. Um, the one that starts with an R in France that I can't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> that one has a lot of swayvites. There's a lot of swayvite deposits in Germany as well. So not to be confused with them, but they're definitely one of these diagnostic impact rocks. Um, but the stratigraphy can get weird too. And I don't really know if this qualifies as sedimentation, but it's one of my favorite parts. Well, of maybe resedimentation. <laughs> yes, that would be a good thing. Um, 
<laughs> so you get these things called overturned flaps, and you can actually walk out on one at Meteor Crater. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is where the stratigraphy is just flipped on end. Right. Well, so ex- upside down. <laughs> upside down, yeah, exactly. It's exactly what you would imagine as a rock comes down. There are these flaps that just kind of go out and flop over. And <laughs> the only way to get that is a huge chunk is broken off and just turned over. So you get this repeating inverse stratigraphy, essentially. That's kind of neat. Um, tsunamites are another thing you could get with big bolides, especially ones that hit in the ocean. Right. And so these are things like Alamo Crater, where you hit and get this giant wave that causes catastrophic sedimentation. Exactly. Yep. And so it's it's going to look like a Bauma sequence in terms of it's a finding upward sequence, but it happens cyclically as, say, the Alamo Impact Crater in Nevada, which the actual crater hasn't been found, but these diagnostic sediments suggest that there was a big impact there. Um, there's these tsunami. It was a shallow shelf, and it's over and over again as the ocean basically settles down. So you have cyclical finding upward sequences that are sort of deposited and reworked as each progressive wave after the impact causes sedimentation. Right. And so the Alamo impact site, if you want to want to call it that, like you said, because we haven't found it, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. But all of these features that we've been talking about are there, which is, as you said, why they uh, why they think it was indeed an impact site. Right. And they're really textbook examples, uh, a lot of them from the Irish range, where you can see these overturned flaps uh, and a lot of these finding upward sequences because the heavy stuff falls out first, right? Right, exactly. So um, the Hancock Summit is the type section for the Alamo Brescia. So it's a big Brescia impact. And you can see these finding upward sequences. And like John just said, at Mount Irish, there were huge, when we say mega Brescia, I mean, we're talking about class that are 50 meters, 100 meters long that you can tell have been, (laughs) you know, ripped out of the seafloor and moved around. And so that's where the catastrophic part comes in, right? When you're moving these building-sized pieces of rock due to whatever impactor hit that shallow sea shelf in the Devonian. That's crazy. Yeah, no, these things are massive, and the forces that go into it are really fascinating. And, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things that you can get from shockwaves propagating uh, through the minerals, altering them, and it's... It's quite the field, and we could probably have a whole show on just what you did for your master's. <laughs> we, well, we sure could, because there's all kinds of magnetic implications, which is what I worked on. Um, and then if you want to talk about planetary stuff, because we always do, um, you talk <laughs> about water on Mars, right? Well, you can look at a lot of these old impact craters on Mars and look at the sediments around the impact craters. And some of those sediments could only have been formed if there was some sort of liquid involved because they look like flow features that are created as, you know, these little meteorites or whatever hit the surface. Yeah. So. And, I mean. Sorry. They, <laughs> they do, they, they, they do j- look just like things that you would see from space on Earth. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, studying these here is an excellent analog for looking to the solar system to talk about some of these processes. You know, we just talked about Pluto and how 
there were all these crazy ice processes and glacial processes that we see on Earth that we never would have thought were there. So the same thing on Mars. We study our impacts, see what they look like if they hit dry rock, see what they look like if they hit wet rock, and we can use those sediments to talk about the processes that occurred on Mars as well. Yeah, so uniformitarianism across the solar system. <laughs> or catastrophism. I mean, you know, if you want to argue it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the next category we've got is weather-related cementation, which we've already kind of covered floods. Uh, and we're starting to run a little bit long. But there are others, and some of them have happened very recently. Uh, right, exactly. So... I couldn't leave out weather-related sedimentation. <laughs> um, it, it seems like floods are this thing that can go in any sort of category when it comes to catastrophic. It's one of the things that, you know, humans are most aware of, I feel like. Um, and this came up because, and really the whole idea of putting this into a class, I'm reading this awesome book called The Emerald Mile by Kevin Fedarko. And it's, I mean, it's about the Grand Canyon and... In 1983, there was a huge El Nino, and this El Nino produced, obviously, a ton of rain um, for the Southwest, because that's what strong El Ninos do. And it caused all kinds of havoc along the Grand Canyon. Um, by that time, we had the Glen Canyon Dam in place, and so the Colorado River had been tamed, essentially, but no one had seen anything like the amount of water that came through with this El Nino event. I mean, it scoured out the dam itself. All the overflow t tunnels were just ripped to shreds. <laughs> they actually noticed when they turned on the overflow tunnels that there were pieces of rebar and chunks of concrete shooting out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of like... Well, there's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. It's like anthropogenic sedimentation. Um, but this book is an excellent book, and it talks about all the different, you know, flooding that happens, and it changed the whole hydraulics of the river as all these little side canyons filled up with water, and then as that happened, created these sort of, you know, density currents of rock that we've talked about before, and changed the river completely forever. So I highly suggest that read if you're interested in sort of floods or how anything gets there. I think it's probably something we're going to go see on the field trip for this class because, you know, every good grad class has to have a good field trip. So <laughs> we may head out there and look for some of these deposits. But other weather-related sedimentation happens too. Yeah, and the first thing that comes to mind is hurricanes. Exactly. Um, some of my favorite deposits in the rock record are hurricane deposits, but lately we've had a couple of really big ones, and a lot of cool science actually happened during Hurricane Sandy. Right, so Hurricane Sandy happened when we were prepared and had time to get robots out, uh, one of my favorite things, <laughs> and actually track what happens with some of the sediment, right? Right, I knew you would love this. I was so excited when I found it because... Uh, we had time to stick robots in the ocean and take videos of sediment movement actually during the hurricane, which obviously hasn't been done before. <laughs> and so <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> we had a really good, we have a lot of um, hurricane deposits or what we call storm deposits. They had to have come from hurricanes likely. In the rock record, we see them a lot. They're categorized by these little pieces of rip up clasts um, and things that only could have been deposited during big storms. So talking about the Arbuckle Mountains here in Oklahoma. Uh, the Ordovician Cool Creek Formation has uh, these storm deposits that are probably six centimeters thick or so, maybe some of them up to ten. And those represent hurricanes from, you know, the early Paleozoic. So how does that compare to Sandy then? Because we've got these six centimeter thick deposits. So what does an earth or what does a hurricane today do? Well, you know, Sandy was a pretty big storm and caused a lot of devastation. Uh, but they think it deposited somewhere around three centimeters. Exactly. So, you know, half as strong as this early Ordovician hurricane that made it, which, I mean, it was a much different, I would say climate, but what I really mean is this is much different geography then um, because, you know, there's a, the continental shelf is out there and they say that a lot of the sediment they were recording as Sandy came ashore, the strength just dropped. And so it didn't move as much, I think, as they expected. But they found this three centimeter deposit in Delaware Bay that was definitely related to stuff that was moved by Sandy. So it's kind of neat to think about the past, um, like this Cool Creek deposit, compared to today's hurricanes. Yeah, and that's one thing that I really liked about when I was doing fieldwork, collecting you know some little hand samples of these, saying this is the record for a hurricane that happened before people. Uh, <laughs> is pretty neat. I get really excited. My students make fun of me endlessly because whenever I see this one deposit, I get so excited and I tell them to just stop and think like Oklahoma was in the, in the ocean at this time. And we're recording a hurricane that's, you know, 300 million years old. That's so neat. Like we have weather. That's not climate. That's weather from 300 million years ago. Yes, that is that is a a very early metar. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, it probably looks about the same as they do now. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, teletype. Uh, exactly. All caps. Coming in. Link on the, in the show notes matrix. if you're not familiar with metars. <laughs> oh, or dot matrix printers. Um. <laughs> but the other hurricane that comes to mind is Hurricane Ike. Um, who really wreaked havoc in 2008. Um, I went on a field trip to the Turks and the Caicos, so an island chain in the Bahamas, and we got to look, and I got to go there in 2010, so only two years after Ike went through. And you could still see massive devastation of these huge coral reefs. And, you know, there were tiny new corals growing back, but there was just a lot of devastation of the ocean floor, not to mention a lot of sediment that had been moved around within this little Caribbean platform, uh, sorry, Bohemian platform, um, from that huge blast of hurricane that went through there. Um, and then it later went on to hit Galveston. Yeah, I mean, Galveston just gets it with... <laughs> With major storms. Uh, Every there's time. a book, Isaac Storm, about the 1900 storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Al Roker just wrote a book about the 1900 storm, too, called Storm of the Century. Oh, well, we'll link uh-huh. both of them. <laughs> and it's yes. going to be a, a link-heavy show here. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that 
really you get a ton of sediment movement, uh, the barrier islands, and then the things that humans do uh, to try to protect ourselves end up also getting destroyed. Exactly. So what sort of wasn't a huge factor in 1900 is sort of all the fortification we have done along barrier islands like Galveston today. And so Ike's interaction with the seawall there and how it interacted with the sediment that, well, <laughs> that shouldn't be there, but that the seawall is holding in place is really interesting, as, as well as a lot of articles that have to do with what humans are doing to, you know, prevent the next Sandy or is it even right? Where should we build? Stuff like that. So catastrophic sedimentation isn't just this cool thing in the rock record. And that's sort of what I said for why do we care? Well, we're interacting with a lot of these geohazards now. As we get more people, um, you know, our population goes up. We have more people living in geohazard areas. And so people need to know about this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, the whole Pacific Northwest is at risk for pretty much all of these. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, anywhere along the coast is very potential. And anywhere in the world could be affected by something like a bolide. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying. I know we've talked about this on the show, you know, yeah, we're looking in the skies for things, but sometimes stuff gets past our radar, literally, and we're staring a big asteroid in the face. So while these things are neat to talk about in the rock record, you know, there is a reason to talk about them that goes beyond just esoteric geologic argument about how you define catastrophism, which is fun. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, this week, uh, in fact, the day before the show releases is the peak of a meteor shower. Uh, So it'll still be going on on the release day, of course. So you should go outside tonight and look up and see if you get to witness some catastrophic sedimentation for yourself. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe those are hitting some other planetary body and causing catastrophic sedimentation. You never know. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's a really fun topic, both on the academic side, you know, these challenging some of the fundamental beliefs behind uniformitarianism, you know, and how we do geology, you know, uniformitarianism was essentially, you know, adopted in the 19th century full bore, but catastrophism probably plays a bigger effect, in my opinion, in the rock record than maybe we give it credit, so. Yeah, well, and We'll revisit a bunch of these, but our uh, our summer short is already going to be approaching fifty minutes. So, <laughs> hey, I think cool we should article. probably. Uh, oh no, it is cool. Uh, <laughs> but I think we should probably push on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Yay! Paper Friday. Yay! And it talks well, a little bit about buildings and catastrophic failure of human-made stuff. So it kind of relates. <laughs> Yeah, well, and by the way, what happened to the the bell for Fun Paper Friday? Oh, man. I don't want to talk about the state of my office at home (laughs) and the fact that I have a six-year-old, but that bell is in this house somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'll find it, I promise. (laughs) Well, this week's paper is actually, I saw a news article on it, but the title of the paper is called Tests of Cosmic Ray Radiography for Power Industry Applications by Durham et al. And that does not sound thrilling until you read it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, This is really comes at a good time, at least in our lab, because it talks about basically CT scans. And we've been doing a lot of CT scanning of little rock cores, but 
This is not sticking a building into a CAT scan. It's using other things to look at the insides of buildings. Right. So CT is really, you know, computed tomography, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like what we do with seismology to look at the inside of the Earth. And you just have to have some kind of particle or wave that probes your volume of interest. And it turns out that cosmic rays are a great source of particles that probe everything constantly. Uh, in fact, <laughs> if you're close to sea level, a lot of your charged particle flux is muons. And the muons go through at about one per square centimeter per minute. And these little muons come from neutrinos, right? So we've heard a lot about trying to image neutrinos, and they're these big water tanks underground that see neutrinos, but the muon comes from the breakdown of neutrinos, right? Right, so you get some interactions in the upper atmosphere, and that ends up raining muons on us. And these are really high energy. So you're looking at three to four giga electron volts. That's crazy, and that stuff's going on around all the time. Yes, going all the time, and with that much energy, uh, they can just zip through most things uh, and not have a ton of interaction, but have a little, which is important to be able to probe the object. Which, which is actually why it was so hard to catch them in the first place, because they didn't interact with much stuff. So it was hard to actually see them. But what's cool about this technique is that, you know, it's entirely passive. This energy source doesn't have to be created. It's already sitting there. They just had to build something to watch it, right? Right. And so you're not dealing with maintaining a radioactive source. You're not dealing with exposing uh, any of your workers or dealing with training, expensive costs, regulatory issues, None of that happens. And actually, this has been used before to look at uh, everything from tunnels and subways to pyramids. Oh, I thought it was really neat that it talks about that this is something that you can use to look at, say, nuclear reactors. Because if you look at it over enough time, so this isn't something you're actually just going to like scan and move on. You have to set this up and sort of have it a time average so you can have a before and after of whatever you're looking at, a building, a nuclear reactor, something. And then you can see changes deep within these structures based on your before and after pictures. Yeah. I mean, one one particle per square centimeter per minute is not very much. Right. And there are some example figures in here of how much your resolution increases uh, everywhere from 15 minutes up to 64 hours. And the image just gets clearer and clearer. But they do some really neat tests showing like, oh, well, if we put a valve in here, we can actually tell whether the check valve is open or closed without taking the insulation off the pipe or you know, taking it out of the concrete that it's in or whatever to see what the status of it is. Or we can measure the thickness of pipe walls and see if they're suffering from corrosion without shutting down the system, removing the insulation and ultrasounding them. And that could save a ton of money. Like, I thought this was a really cool for civil engineering. I mean, because my thoughts go towards dams, you know, instead of having to do this dangerous work of sending a person down there. You know, people die in dams all the time because it's really dangerous work. You know, you could have something like this set up and you can see if there's damage, say, from your catastrophic flood or something. Yeah. And, you know, it does take a while to get this image. But if you're doing it continuously, 
it's not really not a huge problem. Though there are still some improvements in detector technology that need to happen, but they're working on that. Right. This is a cool a cool usage of this stuff. Um, and like they say, it's not sort of an instantaneous thing. The longer you can have your detector set up, the more detailed of an image you're going to get. But that's probably worth it instead of having to drill holes and, you know, hundreds of feet of concrete versus just using these CT scans, essentially, CT-like scans. Yeah. So eventually this could be scaled up and you are looking at whole building processes or whole damn processes uh you know the the only complaint i have about this paper is that all of the plots uh, were very apparently made in excel <laughs> oh that's what i loved about it <laughs> yeah I, now granted they were dressed up a little bit you know like the the shadow was removed from the data points and some of the other ludicrous things that excel does to your plots <laughs> Hey, you still got the gist of it. That's all that matters. No, got the gist of it. And it's really worth, it's a short paper. It's about eight pages long, and there's a lot of references and pictures in there. It's worth taking a look at and just thinking about, well, maybe when this becomes a little bit more affordable technology, how could we apply it uh, in our field or even in just geoengineering for these hazard mitigation like you were talking about? Exactly. Well, I think that's Fun Paper Friday. Before we sign off, though, actually wanted to give a shout out. Uh, we got an email from Stefan Johnson because we've talked about the White Lines paper before when we were mm-hmm. talking about notebooks. Mm-hmm. And they have <laughs> and- a new Kickstarter that you guys should check out. We'll have the link in the show notes that is called Book Block. I'm so excited about this because I think you know my love of notebooks. <laughs> yes and i do have a soft spot for paper things just not quite as much nostalgically i understand um but as stefan has showed us that they can they've perfected this printing technique where they can basically make customized notebooks but we're not talking about cheesy customized notebooks i mean these are high quality looking notebooks um they're great size and i can't wait to try them out with my own nerdy geology picture on the front. <laughs> yes, I think I'm going to make one with the uh, the show logo on it. So I'm pretty excited okay. about that. That's more that makes more sense, but you know, I don't want words <laughs> in the way of my rocks. <laughs> but hopefully we'll get those and we'll get to talk all about how awesome they are as we use our fountain pens on them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, while drinking, you know, uh, some freshly ground coffee uh, <laughs> and ar- Poor. artisan Breakfast sandwiches, yes. Exactly. That sounded a little Starbucks for me, but I'll forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, maybe I was there this morning. So, (laughs) And this afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, if you want to send us uh, anything, you know, uh, pictures of catastrophic sedimentation, some neat YouTube videos that you found, your preference for coffee, artisan breakfast sandwiches, or what you would put... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on your book block notebook you can do that and shannon how can they get a hold of us please send us any of those things trust us we're really bored we want to see these um you can <laughs> send it to us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com you can leave an audio comment or some links to your favorite pictures of big bolides at don'tpanicgeocast.com as always we are on twitter at don'tpanicgeo John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. 
Right. So until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers,